You're listening to Right Between the Eyes, the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival podcast, where each episode we sit down with an outstanding festival guest to talk about their life, their work, the deepest, darkest secrets they'd intended to take to the grave. It's all on the table. You'll also hear a special musical feature from one of the region's most exciting performers. And if that wasn't enough, we cap things off with an author reading from yet another standout festival guest. It's a cavalcade of words for your ears, all on Right Between the Eyes. For our debut episode, we're laying out the fine silverware, the expensive china and scrambling the Fabergé eggs. Our very first guest is none other than celebrated Australian author and YA fiction champion, John Marsden. Later in the show, you'll also hear from Ramorni-based singer Talara, as well as a vivid retelling of Beauty and the Beast from best-selling author Kate Forsyth. But now, it's time to hear from John Marsden as he talks of his dual passions of writing and education, his memories of tomorrow when the war began, and his thoughts on his latest release, The Art of Growing Up. And so today I'm, I'm particularly excited to chat to uh, a real legend of Australian literature. John Marsden, thank you very much for talking with us today. Pleasure, Adam, and it's a pleasure to be called a legend. That's very, uh, getting onto a very high level. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that, that's it. There's a, a certain standard is anticipated now, so all of your answers now have to be stirring <laughs> and summon a particular kind of wisdom, so no no pressure. <laughs> so we won't be talking about the footy or uh, <laughs> the weather. <laughs> Actually, it reminds me of um, reading an interview with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, where after he won the Nobel Prize, somebody had had said to him, oh, so it must be very reassuring in its way because you know you can write now that whatever you put out, people are are going to be impressed by. And he replied something akin to, well, no, now it's terrifying because everybody's going to be anticipating that everything I release is, is, is fantastic. You, of course, do have a very strong reputation behind you. Have you felt over the course of your many releases uh, a sense of, all right, well, they liked the last one. By God, I, I better do it again. No, not really. It's um, I just write what I want to write, what I feel like writing, what seems what's just so powerful in my mind that I can't not write about it. And certain situations or scenarios eat away at me and nibble away at me and gnaw away at me until uh, it's almost like a way of getting out of my system to to write the story. But that's interesting about my kids. I remember when Patrick White won the Nobel Prize and he made that great speech a few years later about nuclear disarmament ostensibly, but he spoke about many things. And he said that winning the Nobel Prize, that he basically suffered from a lack of confidence as a writer and continued to do so after winning the Nobel Prize and sort of fix that. And it struck me that, gee, if Patrick White isn't confident that he can... <laughs> bring a few words together, then uh, none of us need worry too much about our lack of confidence. <laughs> mm. That's there's there's hope for us all somehow. <laughs> yeah, he could write all right. So, how have you found these pandemic days? Because we, of course, were were very much looking forward to welcoming you to to Bellingen and to the Writers Festival at the time of our speaking right now. It was would have been just this past long weekend, but alas, of course the fates transpired against us. So how have you been spending this time? Well, 
still running the schools because I thought that I would have a kind of lighter workload with the pandemic, but it wasn't like that at all. And I'll sound a bit uh, melancholy here and say I've been working an average of 12 hours a day, six days a week for that whole period, really online, answering emails and dealing with problems and situations and trying to find strategies or solutions or new approaches. Yeah, it's been incredibly time-consuming. Being a school principal nowadays, it's a different job to the one it used to be, I think. I wasn't one 20 or 30 years ago, so I'm only guessing. But uh, it seems like it embraces a far wider range of situations and scenarios than it used to. Mm. I mean, I did want to touch on your your reflections on, on principledom and education today. Given that I'm approaching all of this pandemic from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have children. And it seems to me just kind of looking out at how the country as a whole has approached this, that one of the kind of more interesting concerns has been how this whole thing was going to affect education and not just how it might interrupt exam schedules or the like, but how kids were going to keep learning through online portals or through their parents having to suddenly homeschool them, which I thought was quite interesting. But you, of course, not just being a principal, but having established actual schools, I thought, well, you must have a very particular take on how COVID has affected learning. Yeah, except that the answer, like with so many issues involving human beings, the answer has to cover a wide range of outcomes. So we had some students who did better in some ways working online because they were more productive, more efficient. And I think that's because they had fewer distractions. They were able to focus on the work and get through lots of work. But they could be argued to be losing something socially and emotionally through being isolated and not having the daily contact with younger and older kids and their peers. And other kids who didn't handle it well, they became um, claustrophobic, to use that word lightly, which I shouldn't do, uh, about being enclosed in the home environment for such a long period of time, and they missed their friends dreadfully. Anxiety was an ongoing problem for many young people at the moment, and uh, that flared up in some situations, and yet in other situations they were less anxious being at home. Mm. So, yeah, we had a full spectrum of uh, different responses, different reactions. How did you find yourself responding to it all rolling out? Because I I suspect... As an author, you must surely have a you know a fairly fertile imagination and would have considered what life would be like when the super flu comes rampaging out of the Stephen King novel and sweeps across the globe. <laughs> well, I'm very comfortable with solitude. I'm comfortable enough with, with people and uh, sociable enough, but if I had to choose between three weeks on my own and three weeks, I don't know, stuck on a desert island or a tropical island, even with a... <laughs> in close proximity with a crowd of people, I'd go for the solitude. Mm. And um, in January, the last couple of years, I've gone to France and spent two or three weeks just living a monastic life in a house there where I really, the only contact I have with people is when I wander down to the patisserie in the morning to pick up some croissants and pan au chocolat. Uh, it's all coming back to me. And um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I love that. I've, I'm completely happy in that context. And uh, it's a real highlight of the year for me. But at the same time, yeah, I enjoy uh, socializing and mixing with people as well. But I'm certainly not bothered by solitude. So, yeah, 
during the period of the coronavirus, I was coming to school every day and I was the only one here for much of the time. And there's nothing empty at in the school with no students, hmm. students in it. It's, um, there's something very bleak about a school like that. And yet it didn't trouble me. The whole coronavirus thing didn't affect me personally, really, in any way. It didn't have any impact. I suppose a um, great many authors would be quite accustomed to solitude, given that, I mean, with certain collaborative examples, it's going to be a, a craft that you just sit down and you, you knuckle down and do it, especially when mm. it comes to wandering across to, to say, France and you, you do step aside from the, the normal life. Is that a time of of total recharge and removal from the writing process as well? Or are you one of those who, as dawn breaks over the horizon, there you are at the <laughs> desk every morning? With the candle burning, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the caress by my side. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because the first time I went, I wrote huge amounts and was absolutely consumed by the book I was working on and uh, very engrossed by it and so on. Uh, the second time, this last time, I, it was the opposite, really. I read a lot and didn't write much at all. But I went for walks, which were, again, solitary adventures that were very pleasant. And uh, so, yeah, there's no easy answer to that. But I think mm. solitude is almost a necessity for most writers. It's interesting that very few worthwhile books have been written by people working as uh, in a partnership or in a group. Mm. Nearly every book is written by one person. A couple of there's some non-fiction books. There's, there's Paris Burning, which is a sort of popular history book. It was written by a pair of people, and I loved that. And uh, the one about um, Richard Nixon's fall from grace, uh, Washington Post, I can't remember the name of the book, by Woodward uh, and Bernstein. Mm. Uh, that was written by a pair of them. But, yeah, generally, fiction especially tends to be written by one person. Mm. And I think you do. I know that... as when I was writing my books, one of the best environments for me to be in was if I was traveling and found myself in a motel where I had nothing but a bare wall, a TV set, a bed, and a chair, and a bathroom, then that was a great environment for writing because it allowed me to focus. I didn't really have much choice. It was either that or watch another episode of The Bachelor or whatever the current <laughs> show was on my set. How have you found the collaborations that you've been involved with in the past. The first one to spring to mind was, I suppose, a bit more of an adaptation, but The Rabbits with um, with Kate Miller-Heinke. Is it something you would be, com well, not compelled, but intrigued to explore further, or have you already covered that? No, it's, it's not a collaboration in any meaningful sense of the word. I mean, the first collaboration with The Rabbits was with the illustrator of the book, Sean Tan, and mm. then the second one with Kate Miller-Heinke, and I admired her work. They're both geniuses. But we didn't collaborate at all. Sean would send me faxes showing his latest sketches and ideas and drawings. And in those days, I had a fax machine of the old mode, which would uh, have a roll of paper on it. And it didn't cut the roll off into A4 sheets or anything. It just kept rolling. And so I'd come home and there'd be this like 20-meter stretch of paper across the floor <laughs> covered with drawings and notes from Sean. And to be honest, I would look at them, and but it was really a glance. I'd sort of glance through them, and then fax back or write back, saying, great, looks fantastic, keeps going, wonderful, I love it. And that was the extent of the collaboration, because I remember reading years ago that the only thing, I think it was um, Gertrude Stein who wrote this, that the only thing a true genius needs is appreciation. 
Mm. And I've felt that was absolutely true, and I've always tried to follow that credo when I'm teaching. If I have a student in the class who is a brilliant writer, which hasn't happened often, but it does happen, then all I do is just tell them, great, wonderful, keep going, I love it. Because I know the weaknesses or problems that they encounter, they will eventually sort out for themselves. They'll find their own way forward. So I can trust them to do that. And it was the same with Sean and Kate that I knew that I was working with people who were extraordinarily gifted and and bloody hard workers as well. That helps. Mm. So that uh, I don't have to do anything but just say, yeah, great. It's a, it's a wonderful image as well, seeing you there by the fax machine as these illustrations just unspool <laughs> and unspool across the floor. <laughs> yeah, it was quite... There were times when I'd come home and think, good grief, what's happened here? This sort of huge trail of paper. And then I'd realize it was Sean again from, he lived in Perth in those days and I lived on the East Coast, so the facts traveled a great distance. How splendid. I saw your Q&A appearance, I was about to say last year, but I think it was actually 2018. When you were speaking back then of it being unlikely you would write something like the Tomorrow series now, primarily because of treatment of refugees within Australia. And you were speaking of the, I suppose, speaking of the need to identify threats. And I mean, we've seen, you know, a lot of shifts in policy and in public sentiment and behavior since, since the first of the series was published back in 1993. I was curious what your thoughts were now on what are the the outstanding threats to our daily lives. I mean, the plight of refugees hasn't exactly been remedied, but what do you think are the the more pressing concerns? I think the fate of the planet is absolutely crucial, and we are in serious trouble now, and we need to take some urgent action. And I suppose one of the things that coronavirus and environmental damage has been occurring for centuries or millennia but it's been getting much worse in the last hundred years, have converted me a little or changed my way of thinking, and I'm fearful about saying this in public because I don't want it to be taken the wrong way, but it's actually made me think that maybe we do need a more authoritarian style of government because the era of believing that eventually people will do the right thing is now too late for us to keep relying on that. I think that there's enough evidence that's just never going to happen. Mm-hmm. There'll always be a significant, even a substantial minority, if not majority of people, who will do the wrong thing. And there seems to be no way to change their behavior easily or quickly or in the short term. And given the dire state of the planet, I think we probably have to be a bit, um, go back to an old-school approach mm. about being ridiculous or punitive or fascist about us, but to be stricter in what we allow and don't allow. In a way, it's a bit like all the decades that the tobacco industry had to sort itself out and the trust, but using the word very loosely, that governments had in the tobacco industry to fix up the problems that tobacco was causing, and it became evident eventually that Tobacco companies were never going to do that, that we could have trusted them for another thousand years and they would have continued to produce and market skillfully and successfully cancer-causing products. And the same applies to things like the four big banks in Australia and the way that they were trusted to self-regulate to a large extent for so long. And it was now turned out that they were 
charging people who've been dead for years for investment advice and mm. doing all sorts of rorts like that. So um, sadly, and with great regret, I think that my kind of life of believing in the human condition and the, the ability of humans to continue to reach better and better heights has been eroded, and um, I think we have to recognize that that won't happen quickly, and we have to take some pretty urgent action to it's, manage the behavior of the masses, including myself. It's interesting. So you figure it's not so much a matter of having to change public sentiment or or present more evidence or what have you, that this is already understood to a large extent, but we're just not doing anything. And so a hardline approach may be necessary. Yeah, I don't even want to use the words hardline, but I think, yeah, I suppose that's tantamount to what I'm saying. But there are plenty of people out there who do understand how to live in an environmentally healthy way, in a supportive way, in a nurturing way, but there's not enough of those people to counterbalance or counteract the damage that's being done by other people. I mean, driving along the dirt road to school every day, I still stop and pick up beer cans and McDonald's wrappers. We touched a little bit on that you may not write tomorrow, uh, today, as it were. And, but it made me think, in just as times have changed, in your observation, your, your experience, have you found that the takeaway or the message that young readers would have with your writing has shifted over time? Like what might resonate most strongly in a reader in 1999 may be different to what they're moved by today? I think there's one message that still is very powerful, and that is anything which treats teenagers' issues as important and treats their lives as important and takes them seriously as people and shows respect for them as people that still is as powerful as it ever was. So the trimmings change and the props and the um, external details of the story, perhaps, and even the plot in itself, but that issue continues to be something that's very important because they're treated better than they were a generation ago, but they're still shown a, um, a lack of respect and courtesy and consideration in many ways in many different aspects of their lives. I remember when I was leaving a teaching job I had at one school where I'd been for nine years and um, I went in for the compulsory farewell interview with the principal and um, there's only one thing he said which I remember where he was talking about how I'd been coaching a sporting team and he said you made them feel important. And that really, I really loved to hear that because I had and I'd worked hard to make them feel important because... The sport that they played was not regarded as having high status in the school, and I'd worked very hard to change the status of that sport and uh, to make them much more successful and to make being a member of that team something that other kids aspired to to become. And so um, it wasn't the main focus of my teaching energy whilst at that school, but it was an important part of my life. So I was really thrilled to hear that. And looking back, I'd say without being too wanky, I hope, that my books have kind of uh, quite accidentally or unconsciously on my part done the same thing. They've treated young people as important because they are important. And so I write about their lives as though their lives matter and their thoughts matter and their feelings matter and their experiences matter and their values and opinions matter. 
because they do. So um, it wasn't hard for me to do that, but I think it's still something that is uh, an area where we could, as adults, improve in the way that we consider and regard and treat young people. Mm. I've spoken to, to several authors now about the way that they they summon or they can create younger characters uh, and where that veracity comes from. I was looking at older reviews of yours in anticipation of chatting to you today, and particularly around the time of Letters from the Inside and Checkers, I mean, by then you'd, you'd already showcased that you could write young people quite well. But one sentiment that I saw in, I think it was published in Weekly, and was kind of echoed across other reviews is that you have this angry energy across the, the page, across the character. And I, I, I like that phrase in a way. I mean, I think it certainly translates that there's a kind of urgency in your writing there and it, it, you know, it makes you want to keep turning the page. Do you share that energy as you're writing it? Are you channeling the emotions or are you recalling them? Yeah, I wouldn't, I'd prefer your word urgent to the reviewer's word angry because I think there is an urgent energy about it, but I wouldn't say it's angry, but it's very strong. And when I'm writing the books, I'm very emotionally caught up in them to the extent that the rest of life really ceases to <clears throat> have any significance. And uh, so with Tomorrow When the War Began, for example, I really didn't eat for the last couple of days while I was working on that manuscript I was so engrossed in it that I just barely left the kitchen table and uh, I sort of dashed into the bathroom <laughs> in uh, urgent, when it was urgent, and to use that word again, and um, grab a bit of food from time to time. And I remember I had this great neighbor, a really great bloke called Al, who was into jazz, and he called in one afternoon, and he came in and for about 10 minutes, we had this awkward conversation because I just did not want anyone else there at the time <laughs> while I was writing the last pages of the book. And finally, I knew he was one person I could say this to, and I said it to him. I said, oh, well, I'm terribly sorry, but I just can't talk. I've got to get back to this book. And he was like, absolutely, no problem, John. And he was out that door in about 0.8 of a second. <laughs> and I thought, there's a true human being, someone who really kind of understood that this was a time when I was passionately immersed in something that was incredibly important to me. And uh, that's what the creative process tends to be like for anyone, whether they're a potter or a dancer or a singer or composer or gardener or artist or just part of putting ourselves into what we're creating, which is kind of compulsory, I think. So the most recent book of yours is The Art of Growing Up, which was just out last year, 2019. Mm. And it certainly had it had a lot of supporters, and it also had a, a share of critics. Uh, I think in the, it certainly turned out to be the genesis of a, a great deal of conversation. I mean, you were drawing from decades of observations and and your own personal experiences. Do you suppose you'd be drawn to publish such a book again, given that there were there were people who kind of came with knives out at the ready? Oh God, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'd absolutely write it again, and um, I wouldn't change a word, except I noticed the other day when I had to look something up in it that I'd repeated a word in consecutive sentences, which I hate doing, so I'd <laughs> change those words, but that's about it. It's, um, I think the critics of it were people who, for the most part, 
having read it, I know that's a dangerous statement to make, but the ones who I actually met or talked to on the phone or did interviews with clearly hadn't read it and were unabashed about the fact that they hadn't read it, but they were relying upon newspaper stories and so on about it. Hmm. And they were making all kinds of generalizations and assumptions which were completely incorrect. So um, they were just arguing from wrong premises. So, yeah, I didn't take it very seriously. I just thought, uh, well, if they read the book, they'd understand what I'm saying, rather than use this kind of second-hand, sloppily written report in a newspaper as the basis for their assumptions. Is it a different John Marsden when he sits down thinking, I'm, I'm going to write something non-fiction to the the total make-believe storyteller? Um, not really. I mean, I'm still passionately and intensely involved, no matter what the genre or material is. So in writing The Art of Growing Up, yeah, I was drawing on, as you said, my own life but mostly my life as a teacher and step-parent. And that has been a long, many decades of of, uh, working in education, for example, and just seeing year after year things that could have been fixed, that often could easily have been fixed, but were allowed to continue to fester without any attempt to change them. And it was so obvious that there were better ways of doing things. And there were times, I mean, I went to between two and 3,000 schools, closer to 3,002, as a writer doing workshops and talks and sometimes staying for as long as six weeks, sometimes for only half a day. But it meant that I was getting a very intimate inside view of how schools operate because I'd be in the staff room at recess and talking to students at lunchtime and just being part of the life of the school for whatever time I was there for. And in all that time, out of all those schools, I saw, gee, maybe 10 that I thought were fantastic, wonderful schools. I saw hundreds that were awful, atrocious, disgraceful, mm. and the rest I'd call mediocre. They were kind of mm, just sort of, you know, limping along in the middle of the road, just sort of getting by. And... I thought if you took all the things that worked from those brilliant schools and put them in one school, and if you didn't take any of the things that didn't work from all those awful schools, then you'd have a pretty good school. Hmm. So that's what I did when I started Candlebark. The first school I started in Victoria 15 years ago. And I I can say after 15 years, reasonably objectively, that uh, Hmm. what we're doing here works. And if you visited the school, I think the first thing that would strike you would be the energy students who are versed, engaged, just absolutely full of life. And um, even at the bus stops in the morning, as I drive to school, I can see kids from other schools standing there with their heads down, hunched up, looking sort of wan and uh, gray even, with their faces staring at their mobile phones. But the kids from my schools tend to be very different. They're talking, they're uh, chasing each other, they're active, they're engaged with each other. So right away you get that sense. And I'll tell you another odd thing about these two schools, that I've got 370 students roughly, and, and when you see them in class and you see the extent of their involvement and the lack of any discipline problems, the fact that they work willingly and eagerly with genuine curiosity and uh, delight, and the fact that they don't 
They're not rude to teachers. They don't throw anything at anyone. And we don't handpick the students. We take everyone who applies, and that includes a number of people with um, what are euphemistically called disabilities and also with emotional difficulties. So we're not uh, being selective, but we are seeing that you can create an educational environment which is full of wonderful growth opportunities, which kids will grab with both hands and even grab them between their teeth. (laughs) (laughs) To exaggerate the enthusiasm a little. It sounds like a remarkable place, and it sounds like you are are very rightly quite proud of it. Well, we don't really have much more time left, John. Um, As much as I would love to, to kind of keep chatting your ear off but one one final thing is i know that later this year you're going to be hitting quite a milestone as i i believe you'll be you'll be turning 70 so my my early congratulations to you for one here's to 70 more but in the the interim does it approaching such an age is it does it give you the inclination to it's time to reflect on life and uh you know try to tally my my good deeds and my ills or is it more about Keeping momentum. I don't know. I don't think about it much. I just, my energy seems undiminished and I still come to work eagerly and work 12 hours or whatever without uh, feeling that I need to go and lie down for (laughs) two hours in the middle of the day. I wouldn't mind doing that occasionally, but um, (laughs) yeah, the energy's there and it's as strong as it ever was, I think. I've got no plans to retire. I might change the the delineation of my job to some extent, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I'm, I think the biggest disappointment is the fact that we have many visitors from other schools who come to look at what we're doing, and some of them are pretty senior in the whole hierarchy. But no matter how much they tell us how wonderful it all is, at the end of the day, they always get to the point in their speech where they articulate the word, but... And I know what's going to come, but we couldn't do what you're doing because the parents wouldn't let us or the bureaucrats wouldn't let us or we'd get sued. We couldn't get insurance, you know, the the insurance company wouldn't let us do these things, all of which are not well-founded objections. They can all be clearly shown to be misguided and unfounded or surmountable. And yet there's something deep within people that causes them to be very reluctant to make real change, substantial change, mm. huge change in any case. I think we do have what is arguably the most middle-class country in the world, and education reflects that in Australia. It's a very middle-class world school of Australia, and the teachers, including me, are from with middle-class backgrounds. We're teaching middle-class values, middle-class ways of viewing the world. And I think ultimately that's not entirely helpful. Mm. Well, it definitely sounds like you're, you're, you're fighting the good fight down there. Thank you. John, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. In a perfect world, we would have been having this conversation in the flesh, in the Memorial Hall, and uh, afterwards we could have wandered down Hyde Street and uh, grabbed, a, grabbed a croissant, then a, a mocha. Um, <laughs> but perhaps, perhaps in 2021, who knows how it will all unfold over the months ahead. Um, yeah, you had a great lineup of writers scheduled for this year. It was really exciting to look at the program. Ah, uh, it was. Um, it was. Yeah, it was shaping up to be quite a thing. But no matter, we, uh, you know, with the power of podcast, uh, we can still get still get some of you to um, 
to share your time and your thoughts. So our thanks again, and hopefully we'll see you in the not-too-distant future. Great. Thanks, Adam. And from these tales of grown-ups and grown-downs, we're now jumping across to Talara, who has been touring at home and abroad fairly relentlessly for years now. With the pandemic coinciding with Talara's decision to split her album into two EP releases, it's our pleasure to showcase her latest single, Let This Go, a song of love, distance and regret.
That was the latest single from Talara, Let This Go. I fell in love with a girl who had a boyfriend and lived in Melbourne, Talara said of the song. It was over before it began. And not that you'd ever wish heartbreak on someone, but when the dust has settled and you've got a good song from it, well, there are worse ways to spend your time. But now we're extremely excited to bring you a genuinely magical tale from Kate Forsyth, best-selling author of over 20 books for adults and young readers alike. It's a retelling of a story that may sound oddly familiar, though with twists and turns you've likely never heard before. It's a fable that sits at the heart of Kate's 2016 novel, The Beast's Garden, while her latest release, The Blue Rose, is in bookstores now. Once upon a time and far, far away Over the seas where enchantments lay Once upon a time and far, far away Deep in the woods we will meet this day The Singing Springing Lark is a beautiful variant of the well-known Beauty and the Beast tale in which the heroine must follow a trail of blood and white feathers left by her beast husband for seven years, before outwitting the enchantress who had cursed him. It is an old tale told to Wilhelm Grimm by his future wife, Dorchen Wild, in 1814, and was included in the Grimm Brothers' second edition of Tales in 1815. The Singing Springing Lark Once upon a time there was a man who was about to set forth on a long journey. He asked his three daughters what gifts he could bring for them on his return. The oldest daughter wanted diamonds. The second daughter wanted rubies. But the third one said, Father dear, I would like a singing springing lark. If I can find one, I shall bring it home for you, he promised. He kissed his three daughters farewell and went on his way. At last, after many adventures, the father began his journey home. He had bought diamonds and rubies for his two eldest daughters, but he had searched everywhere in vain for a singing, springing lark. This made him very sad, for his youngest daughter was his favourite child. His path home led him through a dark and tangled forest. Through the brambles and briars, he saw the shape of a great stone castle, all hung with ivy and cobwebs. His horse began to snort and fret. Then it reared, throwing the man to the ground. It galloped off into the gloom, leaving him lying alone on the ground, his breath knocked out of him. The air was filled with the sweetest singing he had ever heard. He looked up. Flying high in the sky above him was a lark. The little bird dipped down and perched in a branch right above his head. Aha! 
a singing, springing lark. You are just what I have been looking for, the man said. The man got up and began to climb the tree to try and catch the bird. But then a great lion leapt out of the shadows and roared till the leaves on the trees trembled. I will devour anyone who tries to steal my singing, springing lark. The man was so startled that he fell out of the tree and lay on the ground right under the lion's roaring jaws. I did not know the lark belonged to you, the man cried. Please spare me. The lion growled menacingly and said, Nothing can save you unless you promise to give me the first living creature that greets you when you arrive home. The man hesitated. That could be my youngest daughter. She loves me the most and always runs to meet me when I return home. But then he looked at the great and terrible lion standing over him and thought to himself, Perhaps it shall be the cat who greets me. And so he agreed, and the lion allowed him to leave the forest with the singing, springing lark imprisoned in a cage. The man hoped with all his heart that it would be the cat who ran to greet him when he arrived home. But it was his beloved youngest daughter, Lulala. She threw her arms around him and kissed him, exclaiming with joy at the sight of the little bird. The man was wrapped with horror and guilt. He fell to his knees and put his arms about her waist. Alas, Lulala, my dearest child, I've had to pay a high price for this bird. I had to promise you to a wild lion, and when he gets you, he'll tear you to pieces and eat you up. When she heard the story, however, Lulala said, Dearest father, your promise must be kept. I will go to the lion. If he can talk, perhaps he's not such a wild and savage beast. Perhaps I can persuade him not to tear me to pieces. So, summoning up all her courage, the girl went into the dark and tangled forest, to the castle all hung with ivy and cobwebs, carrying the cage with a singing, spinning lark. It took her a long time to walk there, and the sun was setting behind the castle towers. Her stomach was knotted with fear, and her hands shook. No lion leapt out of the shadows to devour her, however. All was still and quiet. Lulala tiptoed into the castle. In the dimming twilight, she found a great hall set with gold and plates and goblets, brooming over with food and wine but there was no fire lit on the hearth and no candles in the candelabra. Greatly wondering, the girl ate and drank, and by the time she had finished, the room was so dark she could not see her hands before her face. Then the deep voice of a young man spoke out of the shadows. Thank you for coming. Do not be afraid. I mean you no harm. Who are you? the girl said in a voice that quavered. I am the prince of this castle. 
Once it was a merry place, filled with laughter and music. But then I was cursed by an evil enchantress after I refused to marry her. By day I am transformed into a wild lion. I'm only returned to my natural shape at night, and I must take care that no light of any kind falls upon me, for then I shall be turned into a dove and forced to fly about the world for seven years. The girl was filled with pity at this story. We must make sure that no light falls upon you then, she said. The prince said incredulously, Then you will stay? Yes, she answered, and put out her hand to find him in the darkness. So the girl married the enchanted prince and stayed with him in the castle. By day she combed the lion's golden mane, listening to the sweet song of the singing springing lark. By night, she lay in her prince's arms, discovering love. One day, word came to her that her eldest sister was to be married. The girl greatly wished to see her family again, and so the lion escorted her to the edge of the forest, and she ran all the way home. Her father and sisters were overjoyed to see her again, and were full of questions about the lion. Is he not cruel and fearsome? the elder sister asked. Is he not terrible and fierce? The second sister said. Do you not wish to come home? Her father said. My husband is good and kind, Lulala said, and I am happy and well. I do not want any other life. But in her secret heart, she wished that she knew how to break the enchantment. After the wedding, Lulala returned home and her life at the old castle resumed. But she missed her family and wished that she could introduce her husband to them. When news came, some time later, that her second elder sister was to be married too, Lulula begged the Lion Prince to go with her and meet her family. It is too dangerous, he told her. Remember, if even the faintest thread of light was to touch me, When I'm in my human form, I shall be transformed into a dove and must fly about the world for seven years. But the girl promised to keep him safe from any light, and so the lion consented to go. In the dead of night, they travelled through the forest in a carriage without any lamps or linkmen, its windows blacked out with thick cloth. When they arrived... The prince was muffled in a great cloak and hurried down to a room prepared for them in the deepest, darkest cellar of the house. There, in pitch blackness, he met his father-in-law and shook his hand and congratulated the two elder sisters on their marriage. The girl's family were filled with wonder and worry in equal parts at this man who must live always in shadows. Then the girl kissed her husband goodbye and went with her family to the wedding feast. There was much merriment and dancing, and the girl wished with all her heart that her husband could celebrate with her. 
Afterwards, the wedding party walked back to the merchant's house in a long procession lit by flaming torches. After bidding all good night, Lulula felt her way down to the cellar, stumbling through the darkness as if she was blind. But as she opened the door, she heard the frantic beating of wings and felt wind blowing about her face. She cried out in alarm. Light found its way to me, her husband cried in the high, thin voice of a bird. For seven years I must fly about the world. Every seven steps I shall let fall a drop of red blood and one white feather. Follow me. Try to save me. Without another word, the dove flew out the door and she ran after him. Every seven steps, a single drop of red glistening blood and a single white feather fell, showing her the way. She followed till her dress hung in rags about her. She followed till her shoes were worn through and her feet were torn and bruised. She followed until nothing was left of her but shadows and bone. For seven years she followed her beloved, till one day no little feather and no drop of red blood fell. When she raised her eyes, the dove had disappeared. The girl fell to her knees in despair, thinking she had lost the trail of her beloved. But Lulula took courage and said, I will continue on as far as the wind blows and as long as the cock crows until I find him. She raised her eyes to the sky and saw there the great burning disk of the sun. Lulula cried, Sun, you shine into every crack and over every peak. Have you seen a white dove flying? No, said the sun, I have not seen the white dove, but I will give you this little chest. Open it when you are in great need. She thanked the sun and went on until evening came and the moon was shining. She asked the moon, Moon, you shine all night across the fields and the seas. Have you seen a white dove flying? No, said the moon. I have not seen the white dove, but I will give you this magical egg. Break it open when you are in great need. Lulula thanked the moon and went on until the wind blew against her. She said to it, Wind, you blow over every tree and under every leaf. Have you seen a white dove flying? Yes, said the wind. I have seen your white dove. He is now a man again, for the seven years are over. He is under a spell cast by the wicked enchantress who first cursed him. They are to marry three days hence. The poor girl wept. She had followed her beloved so far and for so long, and it hurt her cruelly to know that she was to marry another. But she dashed away her tears and took a deep breath, determined to do her best to save her beloved. Then the wind said to her, Do not despair. 
You have the gifts of the sun and the moon, and now I shall give you another. Here is a little wooden flute. Blow on it when you are in great need, and I will send help. So Lulula limped on and on until she came to a great castle. Crowds of people dressed in all their finery were preparing for a great feast to begin the wedding festivities. The girl opened the little chest that the sun had given her. Inside, a golden gown glowed like the sun itself. She dressed herself in it, then went up into the castle. The prince did not see her. He stared blank-faced at nothing. But everyone else, even the bride herself, gazed at her in astonishment. I want that dress, the enchantress cried. I must have it. Give it to me. Not for coins or jewels, answered the girl, but for flesh and blood. What do you mean? the enchantress demanded. The girl answered, Let me sleep one night in the room where the bridegroom sleeps. The bride did not want to allow this, but she wanted the golden dress very much. So she agreed, but then secretly she twisted the glowing ring upon her finger and tipped some white powder into the prince's wine cup. That night the girl was led into the room where the prince slept. She sat down on the bed and said, I followed you for seven years. I begged news of you from the sun and the moon and the wind. Have you forgotten me? But the prince did not wake. He did not hear her. The next morning the girl gave the golden dress to the enchantress. The prince did not notice. He stared blank-faced, at nothing. Dressed again in her rags, the girl sat and wept. At last, though, she gathered up her courage again and broke open the egg. Inside were ropes of pearls, each gleaming like tiny moons. The girl hung the pearls about her throat and went back to the palace. I want those pearls! the enchantress cried. I must have them. Give them to me. Not for coins or jewels, but for flesh and blood, the girl answered. Let me sleep one night in the room where the bridegroom sleeps. The bride agreed, intending to give him another sleeping potion. But this time, the girl watched carefully. She took the goblet of wine the enchantress gave to the prince and swapped it with the enchantress's goblet. That night, the girl sat on the princess's bed and said, I followed you for seven years. I begged news of you from the sun and the moon and the wind. Have you forgotten me? The prince opened his eyes and gazed at her joyously. My dearest, he cried, embracing her. You have saved me. Now the curse will be broken and I will be beast no longer. They leapt up, ready to flee the castle, but the enchantress burst in, eyes flaming with anger. She raised her wand to strike them down, but the girl quickly lifted the wooden flute to her mouth and blew. As the sweet notes rang out, the wind sprung up 
and knocked the enchantress heels over head, head over heels, all the way down the stairs. Then the wind transformed himself into the shape of a rainbow-winged griffin. The girl and her beloved leapt onto his back, and together they soared away into the rose-blushed morning sky and flew all the way home to their castle in the woods. From that time on, they lived happily until they died, listening together to the sweet music of the singing, springing lark. And that's it. Show is over, people. We hope you enjoyed this debut episode of Right Between the Eyes, the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival podcast. Keep your ears, your eyes, all other appendages peeled for upcoming episodes with other headline authors and surprise guests. Our thanks again to John Marsden, Talara, and Kate Forsyth. We hope you can join us again soon, or in the very least, spend outrageous amounts of money on upgrading your bookshelf. Until next time. I'm unfashionably late to an 